sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Today, we're going to talk about opinions. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) We really are. We're going to talk about ethical and moral opinions and disagreements in the body of Christ. And I'm going to preach from a peculiar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It is one of a couple of times where Paul is addressing, quote-unquote, the weak and the strong with regards to their conscience around eating meat sacrificed to idols. And I want to focus less on the moral issue itself today and more on Paul's words to help them navigate through this issue. Because this particular issue, while there is much that I think we can draw from it and glean from it, it's not something that most of us are concerned with. However, there are plenty of things that we are concerned with. Amen? <laughs> I've seen your Facebook. Don't play. <clears throat> And I was thinking this week in preparation for the ways to speak to this, just because there's so much. We have a little bit more limited time as we're having two services and no child care or limited, very, very limited child care. And I was tr- trying to think of how, how to hone in on the crux of this message, just particularly living in the season that we're living in, where there is more information than we could have ever hoped or thought of, even just 20 or 30 years ago, the quantity of data and information that is available to every one of us, literally in the palm of our hand. And this is not new. We know this. We participate in this. This is now the air we breathe. But in this day, they would have never imagined that there could be so much data, which is just fuel for forming more opinions, isn't it? That's what it is. But then also, I was trying to think of ways to speak to this that are pertinent for how we live in the midst of community in a local church. So not just how to be good Christians in America, but how to be good, faithful followers of Jesus in Antioch Church in this wild season of COVID with elections looming in just, what, 80 days. So I'm not going to get too political today. But I do want to speak what I think Paul has as some, some very strict, difficult things for most of us to hear, at least myself included in this. So just a, a fun little exercise here to think about. So how is it that we typically handle disagreements in the church? I, I want you to put yourself in my shoes. You're preparing a sermon. You want to evaluate all of life from Facebook to pastoral concerns in the church. So first thing we do is, of course, the answer to every disagreement is more information. So we share more information. We do this on social media. We do this, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when I was a kid growing up, my dad was a pastor. This is the kind of thing that would happen in church business meetings or elder meetings where you share more information. The answer is always more information. If I can give them the information I have, then surely they'll agree with me, which of course, tongue in cheek, we know is not the case. So then what happens? Well, we, we tend to either subtly or overtly accuse people of not listening and then attempt to re-explain ourselves, okay? I'm gonna help you understand. 
So I'm going to reshare with the information that I'm bringing to the table, right? And of course, with ethical and moral things, we're going to use Bible verses. We're going to choose one of the 31,000 Bible verses that supports whatever it is that we are trying to get across, and we're going to share that one, as if the other person has likely never read that verse before, right? Then number three, what do we do when that still doesn't work? Well, then we pick apart their argument, forgetting that ethical ideas bear emotional and spiritual weight in us, that we, we forget that we are holistic, integrated, complete beings, and we assume that if I can just convince your brain, then I will have won you over and you'll see things the way that I do, which almost never works. So then we attack the person's weak character, of course, because that's the only thing left to do, right? If you didn't have weak character and you were faithfully following Jesus, then certainly you would see this the way that I see it. There's no other way to see it, right? Then, of course, when that doesn't work, and then when we've created a larger divide, we accuse them of not taking God or the Bible seriously at all and having the wrong expectations of the church, and the list goes on and on and on. And then usually what ends up happening with very serious issues is people leave, and sometimes they take people with them. And this is exactly what Paul is pushing back against in the city of Corinth. So likely this has been an ongoing conversation, or he wouldn't be addressing it here in Scripture. But this has been something where, where two parties in the community have been wrestling over whether they are able to eat meat that has previously been sacrificed to idols. And one camp, of course, well, actually, let's just go and read it now. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Oops. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read it together. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that, quote-unquote, we all possess knowledge, which is, he's quoting the monotheistic Jewish adapted belief of the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one, which is the foundation for our beliefs as well. So we all possess this common base knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, and now he gets into the nitty-gritty of the argument. We know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote-unquote, and lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. And, and let me interject this here. He's not saying they haven't heard the information. He's saying the information has not yet shaped their conscience, okay? So possess the knowledge could be a little vague. He's not saying they don't know the details and the facts that we know. He's saying they're unconvinced by the facts and the details that we know that he's just asserted are true for all of us because of other things in their lives. So then let's keep, oh, my page turned. So let's keep reading. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse or no better if we do not eat it. 
or if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, oh, excuse me, there we go, with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat with a sacrifice to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Mm, I, I heard it. It was muffled by the masks, but I heard it, okay? Thank you. All right, so a couple of quick things. Let's just get through the details and the tactile stuff, and then we'll get into the heart of the issue because that's what I really want to address. And it seems like that's what Paul wants to address. So for one, we've established that this baseline knowledge is that there is one God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, and they believe that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, and they believe God, his Father, is the one true God. So this is the common knowledge that Paul is speaking about. And then he has this line, which we've all heard, but knowledge puffs up, yet love builds up. And what he's not doing is contrasting or pitting one against the other, saying we're either going to be people of knowledge or people of love. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that knowledge can create this inflated sense of security. Because when I know, I know. And when I know, when I'm certain, I know by which the standard is to judge right or wrong. So I'm certain that this is true. And if you don't believe this, then you're in the wrong and I'm in the right. It gives us this, in, this seemingly infallible measuring rod, this measuring stick. And Paul is saying, that's inflated growth. That's not the kind of growth and maturity that we want. We don't want people to be know-it-alls walking around where everyone is certain about everything and they're constantly judging everyone else, putting them into different camps. So knowledge puffs up. It's this inflated sense of security, this inflated sense even of community and of maturity. But love builds up, building, starting from the ground up. So he's not pitting them against each other, but I do think that they have an interesting relationship, knowledge and love. And it seems that knowledge needs to be governed by love because knowledge in and of itself is nothing if not appropriated in a given context in the world, right? What does data about masks mean if there's no coronavirus for which make, making it important, right? Data about masks means nothing if we don't all have a mandate to wear masks, then all of a sudden the data matters. So knowledge always is appropriated in a context in real life, in our context, right? And the way that it is to be governed is by love. That seems to be what Paul is getting at here. He's not saying be loving and forget knowledge as if growing in, in wisdom and in intellect doesn't matter. I mean, certainly if you've read any of Paul's letters, you know he was quite the intellectual. And he lays out arguments, theological arguments, in just about every one of his letters. So certainly knowledge is very important to Paul. But the way that it is wielded in our context can be either to serve people and to build them up 
or like a balloon. It's inflated and very easy to pop. So Eugene Peterson in the message version, which by the way, if you have a message Bible digitally or physically, I would urge you to read this chapter in the message Bible. It's fantastic. And he says there, I believe at verse um, either four or five, our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. And I think that sums up really what Paul's trying to get at in the beginning of that argument. So then Paul moves down into what is the ethical argument? Well, what are the, the conflict? Well, the conflict is that in this city, in this time, 90 plus percent of all of the meat that was available to eat would have at one point or another been sacrificed to the idols. That that's just the way that the, the, the society in Corinth, sorry, was governed by these pagan ideas. And the temples held the money, so the meat would first be purchased by them, and then they would sell it off in the markets. So if at any point you ate meat, most likely you were eating meat that at one point or another had been sacrificed to an idol. So we have these two groups of people. One group of people is saying, guys, we know that the idols aren't real, and we're not going into the temple having these crazy feasts. The meals we're having in our homes, and we're doing them unto the Lord, surely we can eat the meat. The problem is that there were other people in the community that Paul says have a weak conscience. And we're going to get into just a second what that means. And those were people who were wounded when this was happening. And it's not, he, he's not saying people who just didn't like what you're doing, but these were people who had most likely been redeemed out of that lifestyle. They weren't Jews, they were pagans who had heard the message of the gospel, been saved, brought into the church, and now they're eating this meat that's sacrificed to idols. Well, you tell me, what do you think happened? How could it not trigger their previous life? And they don't yet have the wisdom, the maturity to separate and to navigate this issue unemotionally. That they had been raised in that environment for so long that when they saw the meat, when they were in the presence of those eating meat, it was almost as if they were thrown back into their old life. And Paul is saying, it doesn't matter that you're right technically about the issue. You're wounding those whose conscience is vulnerable in this situation by you using your freedoms and your rights. Does this sound familiar at all? Don't worry, I'm not going to go there. <clears throat> It seems, so, so a couple of really interesting things to note here. Paul definitively does not technically agree with the weak. A matter of fact, Paul outlines good theology as the problem. Unlike most of the other times where Paul outlines an argument, usually he's condemning bad theology. This is a bad way to think about this, right? We can read some of that in the book of Galatians, where he's talking about freedom in a different context. But here, it's actually good theology, good use of our minds and knowledge and of the information that he's condemning. And he's not saying to these people, he's also not saying, never eat meat. He actually seems to say, don't eat meat in the presence of those who might be wounded by it. Okay, 
So before we can really, really understand this, we need to dive into conscience. So what is conscience? We're using words like weak and strong, or Paul is using these words that could kind of mean anything, so we need to hone in a little bit. So most of us are familiar with the term worldview. I, I like the, the word imagination as a synonym a little better because I think it helps us to understand that it's not just how we view the world, but it's how we see and perceive, but also receive the world. So it's how we view the things that are happening and how we interpret them, but it's also how we interpret the things that happen to us. And this would be what I would call, some would say a, a worldview, I would say imagination. This is how we've imagined the world to be. And the conscience is the internalized morality that tells us how people ought to live in that imagined world. So in this world that you and I live in, in Colorado Springs, in the United States of America, in Western society, we live in this world. And each of us, with, if you remember the second week back, Pastor Jade had the kind of exhaustive list up here about the things that were our differences. You know, family of origin, place in the country that we grew up, rich, poor, you know, all of these kinds of things that factor how we imagine the world. And conscience is how we govern what is right or wrong in how we live in this world. Does this make sense, this part of it? Okay, so our conscience is the internalized morality that assists us in making judgments about right or wrong. So here he's talking about this weak and strong. And I think sometimes we hear this, and most of us, if you've read this passage, of course we don't want to be weak. We're Americans. We don't want to be weak in anything. So immediately we try and read this from the position of strength. And we assume that we are not weak. We can't be weak. I've been a believer for 30 years. I was raised in church. My dad was a pastor. There's no way that I'm weak. He's talking about new converts. The problem is that's not true. Think about these two stories, which Pastor Jade has touched on multiple times in the last few weeks. These two stories, both in the life of Peter. One is in Matthew 16, where, of course, we know the story. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter responds correctly. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commends him for having received revelation that it could have only come from the Father. The very next passage Jesus is telling the disciples how he's going to live or how he is going to die and then be resurrected. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, 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 no. That's not what happens to Jewish messiahs. What is actually happening there is Peter received revelation, but he couldn't still help but interpret it through his imagination. His imagination is how he viewed and received the world. So he understands that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He just completely misunderstands what that actually means. And you and I do this all the time because we assume that when we come to Christ, our conscience is transformed. And our conscience is not transformed when we come to Christ. It is changed slowly over time. Because our conscience, just like all things that take time, has been being formed from the the day we were born, we were born into a culture, we were born into a family or a foster care system. We were born at a place in the world. And every place in the world has different things that govern that imagined world. 
And then we see this again in Acts 10, which Pastor Jade spent a couple of weeks on at the beginning of this past, at the beginning of this series, where Peter in Acts 10 has just preached the full gospel and then misappropriates it with Cornelius, thinking certainly Cornelius is not who I was prophetically talking about. That's not what the Holy Spirit intended. Why? Because his conscience, his imagination had not yet been transformed. It was happening slowly over time. And I want to I want to say too, it's so easy. This is not the the cornerstone of this message. It's so easy to look at Peter distantly and to look at Paul affinitively. But most of us, and I'm convinced most human beings' process is much more like Peter than it is Paul, where Paul has this transformative moment, and then it seems as if Paul's whole conscience and worldview and everything is transformed all at once. But we really don't see that anywhere else in scripture. That is very, very, very rare. And we shouldn't expect that to happen of us. But you know what's beautiful about Peter? I didn't say this in the first service, but I was thinking about it between services, is that Peter never stopped. He never gave up. Like, think about if in a public moment, you were condemned by the voice of the Lord for being satanic in a moment coming against the work of Christ. How many of us would have the fortitude to come back to church the next week? (laughs) Almost none of us. And yet then we read at the end of the book of John that Jesus calls Peter. He calls on Peter's love for him to push him back into the community. So he says, Peter, do you love me if you do feed my sheep? Three times. So we see this patient persistence in the life of Peter that though he gets it wrong, we do see progress as he lives with Christ and as he lives with the people of Christ. So what marks in particular a weak conscience? How do we know? Because we're all asking the question internally. How do we know if we have a weak conscience? A weak conscience, for one, I would say that I, I believe in different areas of our lives, all of us probably have some strong conscience and some weak. So we can stop trying to figure that out, okay? Okay. But a weak conscience is a conscience that is unable to handle or stomach difference, tension, paradox, or uncertainty. That a weak conscience has to know and be convinced fully in all of its knowing about any number of given moral or ethical issues or positions. That it's, I cannot handle thinking that there might be people who call Jesus Lord that disagree with me on this. That is a sign of a weak conscience. They strive for certainty, clarity, and uniformity and believe that their certainty should be the rule for everyone, assuming that differing opinions equate to unfaithfulness to Jesus. Because if you were faithful to Jesus and faithful to the scriptures, then certainly you would see it like I do. And this is one of the marks of a weak conscience, that they can't handle the tension of knowing that there's a possibility that they might be wrong or that other people might disagree with them on on fill-in-the-blank ethical or moral issues. And so what inevitably happens is they create conflict to find out where people lie and to create uniformity. And this is classic. If If you've ever read anything about church splits, this is exactly what happens in most church splits, that somebody in the community 
cannot handle that there are other people in the community that see something differently than they do. And so what do you do? You start going around, you start talking to people, you start creating conflict. You create conflict because conflict reveals where people stand. And what do weak consciences want the most? They want certainty and uniformity. So then, now that we have all this depressing, very negative information about ourselves, what is a strong conscience? So a strong conscience is a conscience that can live with and among conflicting ideas and hold things together in tension patiently. This is what we see with Paul in this passage. In verse 4, Paul says, look, we know that there aren't idols, so technically the meat's not really contaminated, so I'm technically speaking, on your side, on the side of the strong, on the side of those that are opposing the weak. However, if this is wounding the weak, then you need to abstain from that while in their presence. So what is Paul doing? What is he modeling? What is he commending us to do? To be able to be the kind of people that can hold what we are fairly certain is true in tension with those who radically disagree with us for the sake of bringing us all into maturity together. That is a mark of the strong. They can live in the midst of disagreement and they can live in the midst of uncertainty and everyone not thinking the same way, but they can navigate it in healthy ways for the sake of the whole community. And I want to be really, really clear on something. I am not saying that whatever your truth is, is God's truth. I'm not saying whatever you think is right, is right to you and that's just fine and dandy. No, there, there is God's truth, and there is right and wrong. The problem is, it's not as clear in here as we think it is. That, that when we read this, I mean, we fail to take into consideration, and if this was an ASF class, I would go into this, all of the different factors and variables that go into interpreting, receiving, and then even once we've interpreted it correctly, quote unquote, whatever that might be, we still have our own conscience that it's being filtered through and our own emotional baggage and the things that have happened to us for good or for worse. So I'm going to leave that right there. So I'm not saying whatever you believe to be true is true. I'm saying we all should and can have these opinions, but how we hold our opinions is everything in the community. So have your opinion on XYZ issue, on whatever gender sexuality issue, on whatever political ideology, on whatever social programs, all of, on masks, no masks, whatever. Have your, ish, have your opinion on the issue. But how you hold that opinion in this space and in Christian community is what Paul's addressing. And if you want to be strong and you want to be mature, then we have to together learn to live with people who have conflicting ideas from us and prioritize their health and well-being above our own. Amen. That's what Paul is saying. <clears throat> Let's look at the life of Jesus for just a second, and then we're going to come to the table here. One of the things I think is so interesting about the way, um, I'm going to be very careful with my language here, but a lot of Christians, particularly in, in evangelical Christianity, we've imagined this, this ideal of Jesus that I don't, I don't think is actually what the Gospels tell us, show us. 
And that'd be for another sermon another day. But let's look at Jesus just through the lens of, well, we know Jesus had to be strong, right? Jesus wasn't weak. So let's look at some of the, the ethical and moral things here just in the life of Jesus for one to two minutes. This will be very, very quick. Jesus held radical ethical and moral positions that eventually got him killed by religious inflexible leaders who were very weak but assumed they were strong. They assumed that they were the, the authority, but in fact, they were the most inflexible. And because of their inflexibility, Jesus says, you're searching the scriptures for me and I'm standing in front of you and you can't see it. So this is one of the dangers of being certain that we are either weak or strong, is that we have to learn to be okay with, this is my opinion, but someone who disagrees with me, I need to hear, I need to listen. How is it that you see and perceive this issue? Jesus' life was governed for love by the people around him, not by him flaunting his freedoms and his rights as the Son of God. Read Philippians chapter 2. It will tell you all that you need to know about that. And then number three, Jesus spoke most directly and strongly to those who were the most certain and secure about all of their positions, particularly positions that didn't directly affect them. They were just wanting to be nitpicky about stuff. But then who does Jesus speak the most graciously to time and time again. Oftentimes, people who were morally reprehensible to society, Samaritans, women caught in the act of adultery. I mean, these are people that in our governed, orderly, Western way of looking and perceiving the world would be the people that we have the most moral and ethical issues with. But the people that Jesus confronted the harshest were the ones that were governing the in and out of religion and what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So we should take our positions and hold them with open hands and prayerful hands, of course. So how are we to live together without devouring one another? Well, for one, acting out of love for my neighbor when it costs me and challenges my freedoms. Okay? I want to read this quote from a wonderful, wonderful book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. It's a very short book. It's right at 100 pages, and it's technically not demanding. It's an easy read if you're just reading the words, not lots of technical terms and hard sentences, but spiritually it is incredibly demanding. And I want to read you this single paragraph. He says, this will be especially difficult where both strong and weak in faith are bound together in one community. The weak must not judge the strong. The strong must not despise the weak. The weak must guard against pride and the strong against indifference toward the weak. Neither must seek their own rights. And if the strong person falls, the weak ones must keep their hearts from gloating over their misfortune. And I want to press pause right here. Remember that story where Jesus is asked when, when the guy has an ailment, who sinned? His parents or his parents' parents or him, right? When something wrong happens in life, our, our typical human intuition wants to go, well, what did that person do wrong? And that's what he's saying we cannot do. For the weak who are inflexible and so certain when the strong falls, judging them, what did they do wrong for that to happen to them? 
And he's saying we must push back against that. If we're going to have healthy Christian community, we have to resist that. If the weak fall, the strong must help them up again in a friendly manner. The one needs as much patience as the other. Woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Ecclesiastes 4.10 No doubt when scripture admonishes us to bear with one another and to do so with all humility and gentleness, it is talking about this bearing of the other in freedom. It's a wonderful little book. Just a side plug there. If you're wanting to read something about how we might can live together, he spends an extensive amount of time talking about the weak and the strong. But in closing, just before we come to the table, I think we have to learn to pursue, pursue maturity. And it's in learning that even though you don't see the world the way that I do, which may in the end be revealed to have had more truth in it, I may be right, but I can't be certain I'm right with you. If you crush your brother in pursuit of their enlightenment, you've sinned against Christ himself. That's what Paul says at the end of this chapter. If you, in all of your freedom, wound the weak, you're wounding Christ himself. The great irony here is, of course, often maturity happens as we submit to living life together with people who are striving to be faithful, yet disagree with us. That's the irony, is that so often throughout church history, people leave over disagreements, major splits and minor things that no one will ever know about. People leave in search of a community that agrees with them. The irony is that you grow the most, that you are drawn up into actually being one of strength when you learn how to live with those who are different from you. So we have to be the kind of people that we're not going around looking for disagreements, but we're the kind of people that are not naive. And we know that in a room, even just with this many people, that there are plenty of issues on all sides of the spectrum, on all kinds of issues, and yet I still love you and I'm committed to you because Christ has called you into his family. And when we come to this table together, we are making that sign to one another that I have been invited to the table just like you have. And therefore, not only am I committed to Christ, but I'm committed to you. So as we prepare to come to the table today, let us keep this in mind. I want to read one verse here from the book of Ephesians as we prepare our hearts to come. Ephesians 2, well, I'm going to read a few verses. Chapter 4, Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, we have been called into this one family of God. And we have been called as different as we are, which actually makes up so much of the beauty of this body of Christ. But there is one head and there is one who holds all truth and all certainty. And his name is Jesus Christ, not Jonathan, not Mike, not Seth, not Martha, not Sidron. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we come to this table, we are submitting to, to Christ 
and we are also submitting one to another. So if you would, please stand, exit out the left side of your rows, come receive the elements, and then go back through the other side, and we will partake together in just a moment. chapters later in 1 Corinthians 11. It's the famous passage about Holy Communion. These disagreements were bleeding over into their table fellowship. And Paul, this is the verse where Paul says, be careful or you're inviting some bad things into your life. And he's not saying if you, if you receive communion with some arbitrary, unrepentant sin in your heart, that God's going to strike you sick and then eventually dead. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you make this table about the divisions that are already at work in the community, and you use this table to further those divisions and to create more distance between people, then the work of the enemy is at work in you, not the work of Christ. And this is not his table that you're partaking of. So it's important that we not be afraid when we come to this table of, oh my goodness, is there is there some random arbitrary sin in my life? Did I think something on Tuesday that was that I didn't? Because I did grow up with those very, very fearful, fearful thoughts that this was either going to be the meal that saved me or the meal that killed me. But there was no in between, right? And I think we have to place back at the center of this meal who is the one that is at the center. And that is Christ. And what Christ has done for you, he has done for me. And though we may not see the world the same way, it is Christ that we ultimately both submit to and we are committed one to another. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.